Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 228. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 228 you're listening to. My guest today is Shawnee Gandhi. Shawnee is a producer, engineer, and mixer residing in Nashville, Tennessee. She's a transplant from Perth, Australia. And she's engineered for such artists as Dirks Bentley, Kelsey Ballerini, Allison Krauss, The Mountain Goats, Parker Millsap, and Sierra Hall. And uh, she's also a Grammy award-winning engineer for Sarah Jarosa's folk album. I think I'm saying Sarah's last name correctly. But the name of the album is Undercurrent, and she was also nominated for Best Engineered Album Non-Classical. So, Shani Gandhi coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Let's talk about peace and quiet, shall we? So, if you are an audio professional, you are dealing in usually a constant barrage of sound. Sure, there are the quiet moments where you're making critical decisions, but you might have a PA system in front of you, a set of uh, studio monitors, a pair of headphones. Uh, You might be sitting in front of a drum set, listening to the snare drum as as the drummer pounds away and (laughs) you are getting assaulted. Or maybe you got a a pair of speakers or headphones on and you're listening to... uh, various bits of sound design that you're coming up with, all kinds of possibilities. So we listen quite a bit, and occasionally we don't want to. Occasionally we want to escape it all. Maybe you do a a full day's work and the last thing you want to do is get in the car and listen to music. So maybe you turn on talk radio. Maybe you don't turn anything on. Or maybe you go for a walk. Now, was on my traditional weekly walk that I do, my three mile walk, and really enjoying the nature. But Holy crap, I could not escape the sounds that were not nature-based. There were so many of them. There was airplanes flying over. That seemed to happen every 20 minutes or 25 minutes. Uh, There was the sound of people, and people make all kinds of noises. There's people jogging by. That's okay, I can deal with that, that's fine. But then there's people walking by with their cell phones, with on speakerphone, talking really loudly, or there'll be a group of friends walking, you know, they're catching up to me and they're walking up behind me and you can hear their voices from so far away. So I would just stop, pull over, wait for them to pass me by and then I would continue on. And then I finally reach a really nice patch of quietness. And what do I hear? Damn drones. Somebody's got a drone. And it's like, I can't see it, but I hear it and it's driving me nuts. And it seems to be following me. So that that was just driving me crazy. So one thing that I had the pleasure of enjoying the other day was a little peace and quiet from my old friend David Miles Huber. You know David Miles Huber. He, of course, does the very, very popular book on audio called Modern Recording Techniques. Maybe you have it. Maybe you've heard of it. David did something really great the other day. He posted some uh, links to some uh, bodies of water that he was just recording on a GoPro. Just the sound of that really, really brought me a lot of peace and quiet. I just sat and listened to that and eventually uh, drifted off into a nap. So uh, 
I'll put a link to uh, David's uh, YouTube channel where he is posting those. And uh, kudos to you, David. Thanks for doing that. Anyways, wherever you can find peace and quiet, try to do it. It might end up being in your own studio. You know, as I sit in here, it's really quiet. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, that's it. Let's get to it. Shawnee Gandhi here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Shawnee, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for making the time for me. Thanks for making the time for me. Happy to be here. You are talking to us from Nashville, Tennessee. I am indeed. Let's take it back a bit. You are originally from Perth, Australia, if I'm correct. Yes, and I guess originally, originally from Singapore. And then we immigrated to Australia when I was about three or four and lived there till I was 19. And then I'm out left for America, I guess. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Perth and 
influences of music or audio that took place prior to leaving Perth? <laughs> well, I definitely grew up in a pretty classically Asian household. I'm half Chinese, half Indian. So we just grew up listening to a lot of classical music. I played all the good classical instruments, piano, violin, cello. I was in orchestras, all that good stuff. And then my dad was obsessed with Zeppelin and Simon Garfunkel and all those <laughs> things. So when when he was disagreeing with my mother, he would retreat to his room and watch those laser discs. And that was when we had our father-daughter time. So that was a big influence on me too. My mum really liked all the music from the 50s. My parents are decently older than other parents. So that was my pretty dorky Asian upbringing for quite some time. And then eventually my older sister pushed me into like more of the pop indie world. And Perth is pretty big on the indie scene like Tame Impala are from there and therefore Pond and all those things. And then we're very into EDM, <laughs> I'd say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I had no idea country music even really existed in Australia till I moved to America because it's definitely all on the East Coast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was definitely only until, until I started working for Gary, which is skipping ahead, but I'd never even heard of a mandolin. So it's definitely a very <laughs> different upbringing. <laughs> Well, so if if I'm correct, you actually were on track for a medical degree. That keeps getting slightly exaggerated, I think. I mean, I that was definitely the plan, but I was just doing undergrad science at the time. Take me to the point at which something changed and audio showed up on your radar and became your focus. I feel like I have a really boring story compared to a lot of other people. Because I, I feel like most people are like, oh, you know, I looked at a record when I was five years old and I saw the back and I knew that I wanted to be this person and then I started a band and I'm like, man, I didn't have any of that. Perth is pretty traditional. I went to a private girls' school. Um, there were, you know, three jobs that you would get. You were a doctor, you are a lawyer, you are an engineer, maybe you were a teacher. That was sort of it. And that wasn't anything I was mad about. I was perfectly fine to follow that path. So I didn't actually know that audio engineering was even a thing. And this is my terrible part of the story, but I literally happened upon it one day online <laughs> and this audio engineering society. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is that? Because I've been playing music my whole life, but I hate performing. I have huge performance anxiety. I was not taught that you could have a career in music unless you were a prodigy, of which I was not. And then I saw this nerdy side to music, that there was a physics-based side to music where you could not be in the public eye. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's me. And I just did more and more research and I was like, all right, I'm quitting school. My parents were like, okay. <laughs> and that was it. I just sort of knew that that's what I wanted to do. So I think it took me about two and a half years to earn money to come to America because your colleges are not cheap. Yeah. I quit school and listen, like I think about 95% of it was because I had come across this career that seemed absolutely made for me. But another 5% was I, I really wanted to get out of Perth and out of Australia because you can absolutely have this kind of career in Australia. But my thinking was that I didn't want there to be a cap on where I could go. And growing up in Australia, it's like, okay, if you hit the big time, if you become an actress, a model, a designer, anything like that, you're going to move to America. That's where you go. And I just wanted to go straight there. And I'm I'm really happy that I made that decision, actually. That's a big decision to make. Yeah. I applaud you for not only leaving home. That's one thing. I did that. But to leave your own country, <laughs> that is a huge leap and takes a lot of nerves. So were you scared? Yes and no. I mean, it wasn't like I was leaving Australia to move to China or Bangladesh. You know, I was moving to another 
first world English speaking country of which I had visited a few times before. And if there were ever to be a small step, it would have been that. Not to say that it's easy to get into this country. That was difficult. But I just have a mentality of why not? I'd saved up the money. It was my money. If if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. I could come home to the pretty wonderful town that is Perth and continue my journey there. But it ended up all working out. Take me through the path of coming to the U.S., and the different points that you stopped at, internships and whatnot. I think actually the other thing that was my little safety blanket to all of this was that I decided to move here and get an education, which again is my, I think probably my Asian upbringing is, okay, if you get a degree, you'll get a job, which is not at all true in this industry, but what I thought was true at the time. And so I decided to go study at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And Mm. yeah, I mean, I really liked the program, but the other really helpful thing about that program was that it's a private school and they were able to give scholarships to international students, which pretty much no other colleges that offered what I wanted to do at the time did. They would give, you know, like $3,000 or (laughs) $4,000. Like, that's not going to help. So Ithaca was amazing like that. And they helped me out a lot. And I love the professors there, Alex Perialis and Brian DeZoritz. They became like my audio fathers and they still look out for me to this day. That was that. And another embarrassing thing that I like to either say or not say is that this is all before like Google Maps, I suppose, and before Facebook or any of that stuff. And I definitely thought that Ithaca was closer to New York City (laughs) or at least more accessible. (laughs) You know, I just, oh, there must be a train to New York. Oh, people must be going there all the time. That was not the case. So I flew in on this dinky little plane and thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? But it ended up being really great. And through that, in your senior year, they require that you get a internship. And I actually had one scheduled with Trina Shoemaker in Nashville, which I was super excited about. But Right at that moment, she called me and she was really apologetic, but she's like, listen, I've decided to move to, I I believe it was Alabama, to open up her own recording studio and be with her son and just get out of this industry. She's like, I'm not going to be able to take you. And I was like, oh, that's a bummer. But there happens to be quite a few Ithaca grads in Nashville, Andrew Mendelson of Georgetown Masters being one. And so he graciously took me in. So I ended up doing a mastering internship. But whilst I was there, what was the best thing about the mastering internship was how many people you got to meet. Because people just come through all day, every day, and it doesn't take that long to master a record. So they were just churning through records. And the most amazing people in Nashville would just pop by like, hey, there's Jack White. Or I guess one day Reed Shippen popped in and he was like, oh, do you not want to be a mastering engineer? Not really. He's like, great, come intern with me. So I split my time. Oh, so you interned with Yeah, interned with Reed a little bit. And then I also met this metal producer, Michael Wagner, who lives out in Mount Juliet. And of course. Yeah, and he hosts these audio workshops and I was really interested in them, but of course could not afford them. <laughs> so I was like, what if I just come and like be your assistant and work for free? And he agreed. And at the end of that, he offered me a job. So... I quickly went back to Ithaca, finished off my last year in six months, and then I moved back to Nashville and started working for Wagner. Wow. The world that you wound up in at this moment in time compared to (laughs) probably where your parents thought you'd be and where you thought you'd be, (laughs) how did you feel? Did you feel like you were in your element or did you feel like like a fish out of water? I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I hadn't even 
worked with amps at that point. Even being at Ithaca, we would record a lot, but it was a music conservatory. So for the most part, it was orchestras and choirs and chorales. And I mean, it's like I didn't even know what to plug an amp in and who better to learn under than Michael, who just loves teaching. Like he would just take the time to spend an entire day with me teaching me how to rewire speakers. And he has all these amp heads set up in such a way that I could easily plug in and out. Like the knowledge that I gained working with that guy of something that I knew zero about. I mean, it was unbelievable. Let's go back a bit because at Ithaca, you were learning the basics of audio, right? Okay. So you weren't completely in the dark. I wasn't completely in the dark, but I will say that Ithaca, the audio program at that point was quite new. I believe I was the fourth year. Yes, because the seniors were the first ones to ever go through it. So they were still really figuring things out. Okay. And I think it's still this way, but you basically have to get a performance degree with a side note of audio engineering. But that's not how they script it. And it's certainly not how your classes were scripted. But I found that I was having to spend most of my time practicing the piano, of which I was not. You know, I had to be at the standard of the piano majors at that school, of which I was absolutely not. And so I had to spend so much time practicing just to keep up that I I found I had very little time to experiment in the studio, which is how you learn everything. You know, I'd go to all my classes, I'd study, but you don't really learn from doing that. So as much as I absolutely knew the basics, I knew how to work Pro Tools, I knew how to plug in mics, I knew how to position it, I knew all that stuff, but I didn't have the the hands-on experience. And that was not at all the school's fault. That was simply, I should have chosen a different instrument, but what can you do? (laughs) Did you find Nashville a welcome place to come to? Absolutely. I never in my life thought I'd end up here. It was LA or New York. I didn't even know Nashville. It wasn't even on my radar. I'm from Perth. But when I came down here to intern, people were just so good to me. Like just starting with Mendelssohn, just taking me in and then Reed saying, oh, come over. And and then they'd introduce me to other engineers and, and the other engineers would be like, hey, oh, that's so great. I have these clients. Would you like to meet them? Like it would happen like that all the time. I, I can't handle this particular job. Would you like it? It's like, uh, okay. And just from that camaraderie and seeing that family vibe, which I've heard is not really always the case in LA and New York. This just seemed like an absolute no-brainer. Hmm. So after Michael Wagner, where did you go from there? Then I decided to play the field a little bit, as it were. And I sort of sent out all my feelers to anyone I knew. And I ended up having small jobs working for Craig Alvin, who is a great engineer who just won a bunch of Grammys for his work on Casey Musgraves' record. But at the time, he was pretty strictly mixing. So I did a lot of mix setups for him and printing and stuff like that. And then I worked for Marshall Altman, who who's a great producer engineer, but he needed me to print all his MIDI tracks. So I would learn that, how to beat detect, blah, blah, blah. And then I worked for Neil Capolino, who at that time was tracking a record solely in tape. So that was amazing, though I don't like it. And then I, (laughs) what else was I bouncing around between? Oh, and then Gary Petrosa. It was definitely one of my most lucrative years as an assistant engineer, but it was nuts because I was basically working for them anytime they weren't in the studio. So Uh I would come in and set up mixes whilst they were sleeping. I mean, the experience of getting to work with all of those amazing producers and engineers and see how they set up their tracks, how they mic their instruments, how they like the plugins that they put on their vocal template. And it was very, very cool. Tiring, but very cool. What are some of the lessons that you learned early on? Like, there's so much coming at you at that moment in time in terms of knowledge. And everybody does things very differently. So not necessarily from a technical perspective, but from just a a career perspective. Are there little things that you can recall now that you got from 
each person, like from Michael or, you know, from Gary yes. or from Reed <laughs> or, you know, bits of advice that you could pass on to others? Ooh. Well, I will say, I guess starting with Michael, <laughs> he's just German in the very best of ways, but he would be so finicky about everything, about how to label your tracks, how to colour them, like how the patch bay was, the way that the studio was left afterwards. I mean, he would he would have serious conversations with me about where the pencils were left and things like that, that I guess at the time I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do this. So I didn't really think much of it. But then when I brought all those skills to the other producers and engineers I went to work for, they were so impressed with my note-taking skills and my cleaning and how, you know, basically OCD I was about these things. And so I have him to thank for that, <laughs> for sure. He whipped me into shape. And then Gary said to me one time, he's just like, it's not your job as the assistant to prove that you know how to EQ or compress or mix or any of that stuff. You're, like, your job is to make me, him, look good. And then your job is to make the producer or engineer's job easier. And so that's what I took on me. Like, no one's going to look at me except for the guy that I'm working for. So the way that I would make things easier is that they didn't have time to document every different mic change when it happened or the, when the players changed amps or any of that. And I would just start writing and writing and writing and writing and whether or not anyone used it. But then the next day he'd be like, I wonder what mic we use for that. And I was like, oh, you use this. He's like, oh, cool. And just be really stupid things like that. But that makes a good assistant because that's someone that I can trust and someone that I can take in with me to a session where everything else is unknown except for you, my assistant, my my saviour, you know, the person who's going to get my back because they know I always forget to turn the phantom power on on this mic or they know I always forget to bring the clip for this cable. And that's what makes a good assistant. And as soon as you have that trust, then I'm going to trust you to do all kinds of other things. That's interesting because your sense of organization and, and that meticulousness that you bring to the table, I'm sure there's a lot of times you're bringing that to support a person who inherently is not like that. Absolutely. Not to discredit <laughs> anybody you've worked for, but in many cases, you're kind of setting a new bar. It should be, maybe it was here, but now it's, and for the audience, I'm moving my hand up. <laughs> But it's just, I find that fascinating because I know that as a person who's almost 50, I continually meet people who are significantly younger than me that I feel are 10 times smarter, 10 times better. And I just think, wow, the craft is benefiting from the level of detail and intelligence that is coming from this new breed, this new generation. I mean, I... I I hope so. And I do find that in some people, but I've tested out a few assistants. And I guess what you do find from the new generation is that they're also quite distracted. And because I like things done in a certain way, when you miss things that are not just like a mistake, because everyone makes mistakes and there's no problem with that. But when you miss things, and I know because I was an assistant not long ago, I know it's simply because you weren't paying attention. That bugs me. And I think it's in, it is a new generation of being completely distracted by your phone all the time and wanting to rush and do these things. I don't know. So I guess I have the bar set quite high as well on those kinds of things, because if I know how hard I worked and I know how hard my peers work, I have a couple of really good mastering engineer friends who came up with me. And, you know, you've got to be really OCD to be a mastering engineer. And I just saw, I see how meticulous they are and how meticulous I am. So I expect that from whoever is going to come and work for me, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say, but I also suspect that a lot of, I'm not trying to cast a wide brush here and say that 
everybody in your generation is is as meticulous and together as you. Obviously, you know, you mentioned classical Asian upbringing. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of detail in that, you know, that you gained in your childhood that is now coming into view as an adult. Totally. And both your parents are lawyers, are they not? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. getting all this information. So, oh, I know. Well, you know. <laughs> Um, yes, both my parents are lawyers, my entire <laughs> family are lawyers. <laughs> it's just a thing. Well, so there's a level of detail and, once again, meticulousness that comes through that just was passed along to you. Definitely. I will say, though, anyone who knows me, I'm meticulous about audio and these things, but I drop the ball in pretty much every other aspect of my life. You dealt with me. Getting me to reply to an email <laughs> on time, like getting me to respond to a text, I mean, I just... Your life suffers from being so OCD about your job because you put everything else off to the wayside. And then also being so OCD about your job. I know that there is the tendency to overmix or to overthink a song. And that's really not how the magic happens all the time. I, I don't like people who just send off the first mix and think it's done because it's never done. But I've caught myself mixing well past where the song was supposed to be. And so that can definitely work to my detriment too, especially when you're getting paid per mix. <laughs> well, so... How do you address that? You you brought up just being so focused on the job at hand that the things that surround it can suffer. Yeah. Emails and phone calls and such. And that's a very important part of, of what we it do. It is, so, which is very irritating. <laughs> it's a new part, I think. The social media and all that stuff, it's new. Yeah, the social media, but also just the follow through. How are you approaching that? Or, or are you just now starting to realize, oh, yeah, well, I guess I have to Mate, deal with this too. I think I come too. up with a new plan like every month. Like, okay, this is going to work <laughs> for me. I'm going to reply to emails from this time to this time and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to script out my whole day like this. I'm just, I'm just trying. <laughs> I don't know. You're, I know. You're only <laughs> human. But I know that it's part of our job is to be responsive like that. And I guess at some point when I get around to it, I will get a manager who will help me with these things. How do you say Gary's last name? Pichosa. You've been working with Gary for how long? I think I worked with him for about six years. I think our last major project ended at the start of last year. And you know how projects keep going, but I've pretty much been solo since then, which is really fun and scary. Well, I want to talk about that solo part, but I do want to talk about your time with Gary and, you know, just a broad overview beginning to end. What have you learned from that experience and how has that shaped you for what you're doing now? Oh my God. I mean, where do I even start? <laughs> it, it was everything. I seriously think he is one of the best engineers on the planet. And to get to learn from him like that. And again, he was a really good teacher. Also, though, in the way that he was so ready to hand off all those menial tasks to me. Like he was desperate for someone to take over all the things that he didn't want to do. And I was so excited to take those things over. Give me an example of those things. I want to say in the first week of maybe working for him, he's like, I'm going to go get my hair cut. And I was like, oh, OK. He's like, you've got this, right? I'm like, um... Sure. Like I'm in the middle of tracking. At that point, it was Sarah Jones's Build Me Up From Bones record. It would be that. Or he had to go pick up his kid from school, which he was so happy to have that time to be with his family that he was just like, okay, you've got this. I'm like, ah, you know, freaking out. But it was throwing me into the deep end like that, that you just learn. And also the people that he works with, the Americana folk bluegrass crew. He told me this from the get go, but I didn't realize how true it was. They're just the best people. And so mm. getting to work, the first record I did with Gary was Sarah DeRose, who's become a dear friend. It's like, if I didn't know what I was doing, we could just figure it out together. And Gary was never to know. <laughs> well, maybe he was, but yeah. <laughs> it was great like that. And so he wanted me to, he taught me anything I wanted to know. I would just stop the session, ask questions. I would pop in on his mixes, ask more questions. He basically, he took me from being assistant engineer 
Then he let me be co-engineer. Then he let me be co-producer. Then he let me be co-mixer. I couldn't imagine a better experience. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What were the challenges in that time period? At that time, I was very, I was very concerned with staying in the country. I just got a green card last year, which was Oh my God, everything. But before that, I I must have gone through seven or eight visas. They're very expensive and you don't earn a lot of money being an assistant engineer slash free intern. So it was hustling. When I worked for Michael, I worked four nights a week at Broadway Brewhouse. And so I'd go, I'd leave his studio at seven. I'd work at the Brewhouse till four or five in the morning. And then I'd go back to his studio at seven. And I did that four nights a week because I wanted to be able to be a free intern. And then with Gary, I mean, there was one session working for this band called The Green Cards where I got a call from my lawyer and he was just like, so your visa petition fell through. All right, what does that mean? He said, you have to leave, like, now. <laughs> what? So I had, to, I had to leave the session, pack my bag, and, and fly back to Australia that night. <laughs> so oh my God. it was things like that. And then I got stuck in Australia for two months until someone else sponsored my visa. And it was always just friends in the industry. People would help me out. And, and then I would get back into the country on a different visa. And then that would fall through. And then I'd have to leave again. And, and I wasn't always able to bill for my, my work. So I definitely did a lot of stuff for Gary, getting paid with food and teaching. And that was completely fine to me. But I guess now I take that on with any of my assistants and interns. Unless you're really not helping me at all, I will always pay you. I will always feed you because it's just the hours that we work. How are you supposed to live and eat? That's a huge (laughs) challenge. I mean, the pressure of trying to be the best that you can be in a session for the artists, for producers you're working for. And then on top of that, to have these immigration hassles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was a lot, but I think it just makes you hustle a little harder. It was exciting. And and people rally around you. I've, I just have had nothing but support from my peers in Nashville. Anyone I reached out to would write me a letter because it's such a family vibe here. And I just owe them all a lot. Knowing what you know now about the whole immigration thing, what advice would you give to those who want to do what you're doing who want to come to the U.S. Is there a better way to do this? Is there a smarter way now that you have been through all of this? Oof. Man, I wish I had a better answer for that. I went through the school system, which helped a little bit because I got a bachelor from an organization that this country would actually recognize. That being said, of course, you're going to pay a lot of money for that. But the good thing about that is that after you leave school, you have a year where you can look for work and mm. and actually bill for things that you won't be able to bill for after that. I don't know what I would have done without that. The challenge with the visa situation and being an engineer is that no one knows what audio engineering is. And so to try to explain to some guy in a cubicle that audio engineering is not an engineering job, therefore I know I'm not going to get hired by an engineering firm, and it is an art form. but no, I don't sing and perform. So you can't see my tour schedule. It was this like funny that that was the whole back and forth of having to first prove that engineering was a, was an art 
and then go about getting the artist visa. But I do think that that's all changing right now. When I got started, there were barely any schools offering this as a degree. And now every school and its mother is offering this as a degree. So I think it's I think it'll be easier for everyone following me, depending on what happens with this government. But we'll see. Yeah. Also, I think the whole Grammys on the Hill thing where they go and, you know, essentially lobbying on behalf of artists and engineers and those of us in in the industry, I think is is helpful. Really helpful. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing that gets around old fashioned bureaucracy for sure. Yeah. Yes. To try to get them to change their ways. There's there's too many. There's too many things. I will say that even after being here for 10 years, getting a degree having several visas, paying all my taxes, doing all the right thing, I still almost got turned down for my green card application until I won a Grammy. That was the whole thing because you have to, really? yes, <laughs> literally, you have to prove all these other things on this like checklist that they have, this random 10 point checklist. You have to prove like three of these points to get even discussed about to have this green card or you can win the prize that is at the top of your field, be it an Olympic gold medal or an Oscar, literally a Grammy. And so when I was at the Grammys and we won for Sarah Jerose, I was just like looked around, I was like, I got a green card. And that was that. Was that. <laughs> and the freaking Recording Academy were amazing. They printed my Grammy earlier than anyone else's. They sent it to me and I had to take it to my visa interview in Memphis as my piece of evidence. So it's all very funny, but I'm here That now. is fantastic. <laughs> Wow. So educate me a little bit because I was born in this country. So a green card is officially your ability to stay permanently in this country, is it? It's a permanent residency card. So you have to technically renew it every 10 years, I believe. But I hear that that's an easier thing to do. It's not citizenship. So I can't vote. Yes. Okay. Would you ever consider becoming a citizen out of curiosity? Absolutely. I would keep my okay. citizenship, of course. <laughs> but um, Of course you would, yeah. But, but I mean, I, I love this country. I'm invested in this country and I would like to play my role as a member of the community and do some voting and all those good things. And also, you know, it was really an underlying current of all this work that I was putting in in this industry, all the money I'd spent on education, all the hours I'd spent working for free and slogging away and learning this craft, which was completely new to me and which I was absolutely in love with. There was always this undercurrent of, oh my God, this could all be over tomorrow. And when, you know, you do get calls from your lawyers who tell you, you have to leave right now. And I would go home and sit in Australia for like, I think I sat there for a good month before anything happened. I just sat there thinking, I don't know if I'm ever going to get back in. So it would be amazing to have citizenship and not have that be this cloud that hangs over my head. Tell me about how your world is constructed now. You know, <laughs> do you have a studio that you work out of? and I do. So it was probably about three years ago, Marshall Altman moved out of his space at House of Blues and he bought this property in Berry Hill, which is for anyone who doesn't know Nashville, where all the main studios are, it's just near Blackbird and all those things. So he bought this really cute property in Berry Hill and it had a little B room and he offered it to me. And of course, it was extremely premature. I didn't have near enough work to afford it, <laughs> to really make use of it. I mean, months would go by that I wouldn't even step foot into it because I was so busy cutting a record in Asheville or working for Marshall, or working for Gary or anything like that. But something in me knew that I needed to take hold of this opportunity. And actually, Marshall was the one that said, you know, it will bring you work because even though you're doing all this editing and tuning vocals and stuff on your own at home and even mixing, like that doesn't make you look like a pro. If you have a studio, people automatically think higher of you and you can bill for studio time and having an office out of your house, just all of these things. And he pretty much talked me into it. And it was 
an excellent thing because a few years later, I was getting more mixing gigs and engineering gigs that didn't have budgets to go to major studios and didn't have budgets to pay for Gary's studio so I could mix. And so I had this space and I wouldn't have been able to take on those indie bands if I didn't have a space of my own. And that opened all these doors to everything else. So I'm really glad I took that leap. But yeah, it was a little little painful at first for sure. How do you get your clients mostly these days? I was going to say it's all word of mouth, but for the green card situation, what happens to me is because people keep spelling my name wrong, that my credits are all over the shop online. Like you cannot look me up. It's just, it basically looks like I've done nothing. And that's what I was told by my lawyer that the little dude in the cubicle will Google me literally to see if I am who I am. And if I am as quote unquote famous as I am, actually Charles Alexander, who's this great guy in Nashville, gave me the advice. He's like, you need to get ahead of that. Build your own website. So your credits are the first things to show up. He's like, stop relying on other people. It's like, well, that's a very good and simple piece of advice. And so I had someone build me a website specifically for the Grammy thing. And it just has a like a contact me button at the bottom. And honestly, I've been getting a lot of work through that. And I never thought that it would happen. Like I maybe you contacted me through that. I'm not sure. But yeah, having this website, which I really didn't want and which I really didn't nurture or maintain has given people the ability to contact me. So I will give that advice to other people coming up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest. I forgot how I contacted you. Oh yeah. I think I did go through your website. I think I saw your name, Googled you, and then so maybe I did what Mr. Dude in the booth would do. (laughs) Which is what we all do. I think everyone's moving away from Facebook. People are much more aware that people are trying to spend less time on Facebook. I hardly check it anymore. If you reach out to me through Messenger, you're probably going to get ignored. And so this is actually still the way that people will reach out to you. And I don't know why I fought it for so long, but it's been one of the best things that I've done. Would you say that you primarily deal in acoustic-based recordings? Yes, I think so. I think from Gary, because again, the amazing thing of working for people like Gary and Marshall and even having people in your back pocket like Reed and Vance, it's like when people approach them and they want something mixed or engineered, but they can't afford these great solid people, they go, hey, why don't you go to Shawnee? She is half my price but we taught her everything she knows and we can vouch for her as a great engineer. And that was definitely how I started getting my gigs. And so a lot of those obviously came through Gary. So a lot of those obviously are acoustic based. I will say a lot of country stuff came through Marshall and another good friend of mine, Andrew Petroff, who does a lot of country work. But yeah, it always comes through word of mouth, knowing producers who do that kind of thing. And they, every producer has a list in their head of like, okay, the really expensive mixing engineers, the middle of the line mixing engineers and the cheap mixing engineers. And whichever way I tend to fall on that budget, they will reach out to you. Should that happen. And and yeah, um, so I do do a lot of acoustic work sort of for the younger generation, I think, of Americana and folk folkies. And I wonder if you're gravitating towards that type of music just by way of the people that, like Gary, that you've worked with in the past. Do you think that that has anything to do with your musical upbringing? Oh, I don't know. I've never really thought about it that way. I guess being classically trained, I am just completely in awe of the musicianship of a lot of these grasses and actually the metal players too when I was working for Wagner because a lot of those guys are classically trained and they will play like that too. So, I mean, working for musicians of that caliber just makes your job as an engineer so much easier. At that point, they oh have just... Oh, God, doesn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, they've honed their skill. They know their tone. They've got the instrument. They've got the right hand. All you have to do is capture it. And half the time they can tell you where to put the bloody mic. It was, I mean, it's its insane. And so I'm not in any hurry to move away from that. It pushes me as an engineer and it just opens my mind to, I've worked for some of the best mandolin players in the world. So now I know how a mandolin should sound and I can move mm-hmm. on with that weird piece of knowledge that I never thought I would have and, and apply that 
to everything else. Now, I love it. I've completely fallen in love with these genres, having not known them at all a couple of years ago. What are some of the mistakes that you have made that you'd be comfortable talking about in terms of coming into Nashville and anything that you can cite to say, don't do this at home, kids? (laughs) I have so many. (laughs) I'm the one that just flew into my head. This should be a don't anyone do this ever, but I swear everyone has a story. I deleted an entire session one time. I mean, we were, we tracked all day with this guy, Parker Millsap, who I ended up making two records with and who is, again, a very dear friend. But this was the first time he came in to cut tracks with Gary. And I basically created the template after we had already tracked the first song. And then when I made a template for the next song, I deleted all the audio in the template and just deleted an entire song. I mean, I <laughs> wanted to just die. And I'm on the phone with like the Cubase guy. And of course, you know, they tell you like, well, don't hit record after that. And I'm like, well, I definitely did that. So it was all gone. I wanted to die. They were so great about it. Yeah, don't delete audio in the middle of a session. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Did you make any (laughs) networking or social mistakes? Yes. What would you advise people not to do when coming to Nashville and trying to ingratiate yourself to the Nashville recording scene? Well, gosh, I think it is is such a a weird balance that you have to find that definitely when I got here, all of my jobs came from meeting people. And to meet people, you have to go out. Maybe it's different now, but at that time, you know, everyone rocks up to the Melrose after going to the basement and that's where you meet people and you talk to them. And so definitely you have to play the balance of how late do you stay? How drunk do you get? How often do you go out instead of going to work? And then the other balance is like, how much work do you do for free? And when do you put your foot down? And that, I don't think anyone has come up with that magic number because it's just really difficult. It's knowing when to work for your friends and when to not work for your friends because you don't want to damage a friendship. I mean, this isn't even my mistake, but I learned from this guy making this mistake. But this producer came from LA, came to Nashville, and I think he was so hell-bent on not looking like a pushover that he started charging all of his co-writers demo fees And I mean, just things that are so un-Nashville and might be the way that it is in LA or or whatever, but just rubbed everyone wrong. This guy is actually amazing. I'm not going to name him, obviously. And he just needed to get past that. But it is. It's either coming into this town being too nice and getting completely taken advantage of or coming in like all macho and this town does not react well to that kind of vibe and we will push you out and we'll punish you for it. So I think it's finding that balance. 
Do you think it's a little bit like high school? <laughs> yes, but I went to an all-girls <laughs> high school, and this is a very male-dominated world. So. Oh, yeah. Very different. <laughs> very different, but also, but also not. Also not at all. We're up just about out of time, but I want to ask you, do you have any things, habits, or routines you do to kind of keep yourself focused and keep your mind in the right place for you? Absolutely. That is the other meticulous part of my life that I do. I do everything I need to do for myself in the morning. So I, I get up and I work out and I meditate and I do all that stuff so that when I get to the studio, the rest of my day can go wherever it needs to go. If an artist wants to go to a 4am, I can go to a 4am and it doesn't affect all the things that I need to keep doing to stay alive from working all these mm. long hours because there's just no way. You can't count on a session to end on time and you can't count on your energy levels to be high enough at the end of the session to want to go for a jog in the park or want to call your mother or any of these things that make you a whole human being, which I, I have trouble finding. I mean, I do all these things for myself in the morning and then I go to work. But then when a session gets really hectic, you definitely you stop seeing your friends. You stop having time for your partner. You All these things fall by the wayside. So again, it's that balancing act. But the only thing that I have managed to find balance over the years is to just work on my health in the morning so that no one else, because musicians don't get started till 11 o'clock anyway. So if you get up at seven, you have all these hours that no one's doing anything. And that's just my time. And that's been my go-to. That, I like that. I battle with, because I have kids and, yes. you know, I get up pretty early. Once they're out the door and out to school, I like to go for a walk in the area that I live. It's about a three-mile walk that I like to do. But I'm often at odds with it because I think, oh, but I really want to get in and touch up that mix yeah. that I was working on yesterday. Or, I, you know, there's something that I'm dying to just get to. Do you go through that oh, at absolutely. all? absolutely. The guilt is real. Do you just have to be disciplined and tell yourself, no, I'm going to work out. I'm going to do my morning routine for me. <laughs> Listen, again, it changes. It changes. Sometimes I just have to do it. And thank goodness I live close enough to my studio that I can pop back. That actually very rarely happens. Once I'm, that's the thing. Once I'm here, I'm here. I eat all my meals here. I haven't cooked a meal and I can't even tell you how long. I'd be a terrible mother. <laughs> I don't know how to cook. <laughs> um, I, pretty, I get up, have a cup of coffee and go to the studio and then I eat a lot of Panera. And, you know, so that is, again, I will say I don't, I don't have kids, so I don't have that extra amount of time that when I did use to nanny when I was trying to make money. Oh, my gosh, I know how hectic and tiring that is to get kids off to school in the morning. The last thing you probably want to do after that is meditate and or work out. So, yeah, again, I'm just saying, like, no one's expecting me to do anything before 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. That's just not studio hours, especially not mixing yeah. hours. So, yeah, if I get up at 7, I'm not receiving a damn email from the artist till at least 1 p.m. So that's, that's my... <laughs> Thank God. Otherwise, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so if people want to find out more about you, they can go to shawneegandhi.com, yeah. correct? Yep. Well, Shawnee, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. Your journey is is quite fascinating, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. Excellent. Talk to you later. Bye. Shawnee Gandhi here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me here today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. I want to, of course, thank our friend Mr. Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme music and Chuck Smith for his lovely voice, as well as Anne-Marie Plough for her incredible editing. Thanks for listening. Spread the word. Tell everybody about it. Come back and listen to some other episodes. And uh, until next time, take care. Care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>